So I, I am going to say that as we get into this in just a moment, um, some of you might be familiar with this. Actually, some of you who are at the Zateo conference, you're going to be really familiar with this because you've heard some of, this, uh, some of this angle on this story. You've heard this biblical story told by me before. Um, but, and some of you have been around for a really long time also, but I think that's only like three. And there's a reason that we tell this story every five to ten years, uh, and we tell it more often than that, but specifically in this way, because we need to see some of the deep truth that is available through the Genesis story to us. Now, we've been talking through Genesis for, I think, three weeks now, something like that. Um, and so we're, we're exploring the story that forms us in a really significant way. And, and we've been told and we've been looking at, at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, where um, God creates a good creation. God creates humanity for human partnership. Um, and humans have this tendency to reach for their own way and to go on their own path. And God's redemptive spirit keeps trying to work with people in the midst of it all. That's really the big picture of the first three chapters of Genesis. God creates the world to be good. This whole story is told up and against other narratives about how the world came to be and what reality is like. And the Hebrew story that is forming and is being written down, it's, it's vastly different than all of the other gods. And we have to understand that contrast because that's what helps us understand what the value of the story is. So much of the why, all right, and the who, not just the what and the where and the how, all right? So that's, that's what we're moving into. Uh, and so we see this really through um, this, this whole story through two lenses. One is an ancient worldview lens that I just mentioned that understands um, that these origin stories were trying to communicate something to a certain time and place. But secondly, we look at it through this Jesus window. So as Jesus followers, we go backwards and we look at the story of Genesis. I don't know why I'm popping. Is that bugging the rest of you? Okay. Okay. Maybe it's because I've got this thing pinched too much or something. If it does, I'll switch it up. You just let me know. So the Jesus window means that we, we know the end of the story in a way that the original hearers and tellers of this story did not. So we understand that God's fullness actually is going to be coming in Jesus and therefore, we read the story backwards and forwards. We look for the ways that God is helping his people move toward the truest encounter with God's heart and character that we see in Jesus but all, and, and the redemption that we see in Jesus. But we also then look backwards to see how this story is now understood as the formative story of a Jesus people and where the through lines are that help, help us see who Jesus really is. All right, so um, one of the, the helpful tools that has been told, and I'm not going to play this whole thing, um, but do you know the, the movie Up? Um, okay, so the, let's just, this is how the movie Up begins, all right? And I'm not going to do it all because this is the worst way ever to start a message. It's super sad. But just take a look at a little of this here. And so you get this montage 
And this montage is covering, I think we're going to go with about 60 years in the course of four minutes. Okay? And this is really beautiful. And like I said, I'm going to stop it before it gets really, really, really sad. Okay? So, so this, the story of Up itself is a story that begins when this gentleman is, I don't know, maybe 80 years old, um, after he's lost his wife. However, the first four minutes of the movie take you through all of this origin so that you understand the emotions and the experience that's about to come for the real story. Because to be honest, that's not actually the real story. Not for, not for the movie. It's just the precursor. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis um, are essentially the same thing as the first four minutes of the movie up. They are to give you a foundational understanding that leads you to the real story, to what, what we're really going to get to. And all of a sudden, things begin to slow down after real fast stuff to just help catch you up to speed. So we've had 11 chapters that cover like a whole lot of the course of human history, honestly. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis 12, we spend mm, uh, 15, 15 chapters on one guy and his family. Okay, so all of a sudden life slows down and you start to dive into the real story. And this has been helpful leading us up to this point. So I want you to just kind of think about it like that. Now, um, remember, I told you last week, we let the cat out of the bag a little bit, that in the Adam and Eve story, we see this, this, um, this encounter that because they want to do their own thing, it leads to this loss of land, life, and relationship. Okay? But that even... In the midst of that, God begins to do something new that we are going to look at that undoes all of the pain and sadness, undoes all of the disconnection, all of the loss of land, all of the loss of life, and all of the loss of relationship. And so when we look at the story of Abraham, we are looking at the beginning of God saying, yes, humanity has this propensity to move in one direction that is often against what God's heart is. But God's very character is to say, I refuse to give up. And I will continue to draw in to restore people to me and to the world in which I created them to dwell. All right? So we have to understand, because sometimes what we think is we think we've got this Old Testament story that's this rough and tumble God, and then we get the nice side of God in the New Testament. And we really have to start to debunk that. And, and this story, when we see the right through lines, and again, not everything is helpful in seeing the right through lines to Jesus. All of the scriptures is helpful for informing us of the story, but it's not all helpful in forming us into Jesus-like people. And we can get into that in a long, long seminar. Um, but, but we won't do that right now. Right now, I want you to understand that there's this guy that we are about to meet in Genesis t- chapter 12. And the whole nature of the writing of the book of Genesis changes at this moment. All right? And in Genesis 12, we meet this guy, and his name is Abram. He's a nomad, and he's traveling through the Arabian desert with his whole clan, with his wife Sarai and their extended family, and they're coming westward through like this fertile land, uh, toward the fertile land of Canaan. It was like a 950-mile journey that they're on at this point. Um, they ended up settling, though, at this place called Haran, all right? And, uh, and it's there that God appears to Abraham. Abraham's 75 years old or so at this point. It's near the time that his father dies. And God appears to Abram, and he makes, by the way, I am totally going to mess up Abram and Abraham throughout this whole thing. 
Just know it changes in Genesis 17, and I'll explain why. But if I say the wrong name at the wrong time, just deal with it. Okay, so, so God appears to Abram and Sarai, and, and he's in Genesis 15. And, and as far as we know, there is nothing that special about Abram. In fact, the more I've worked with him, he's a hard guy to love. Like, he's, he's really problematic. Like, there is a lot in him that does not look like faithfulness, let me tell you. And so it's kind of awesome that that's one of his defining characteristics because it reminds us that God can work with folks like Abraham. And you're going to see what he does in just a second. But anyways, so God appears to him in, the, um, in Genesis chapter 12. And here's what he says to start, chapter, um, to start the, the encounter. The Lord says to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So immediately God is leading them into a special land, right? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now there's a lot to notice here. But what I want to draw your attention to, the word nation is the same word for people, right? So he's not talking about like a great country. Um, those concepts weren't even really there. I will make you into a great people. Do you know what that means? What does that mean? It means that one person becomes many people, right? I'm going to make you into a great people group, okay? So what does that sound a little bit like? Like, keep it appropriate. Sounds a little like being fruitful and multiplying, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we get a fresh take on the original commandment that God gives people. However, it doesn't come as a commandment this time, does it? What's it come as? A promise, yes. Okay, so we are seeing a fundamental shift. So in Genesis' story, the first thing that we see is God saying, here is your task. Go and do it. People don't do it well. They do that part well, but then it goes out of control. Don't, and, and, and so, so God gives people this task to go and to, and to essentially to be a blessing, to go and care for the earth. We talked about those words, to rule over it, to tend the garden. And they don't do it well. So now, but God refused to give up. There's a couple stories in there in the middle that one day I really want to teach through. I got excited about them this week, and I was like, dang it, skipped over some really good stories because Noah has its own redemptive work, even though it's super weird in the Tower of Babel, but we'll get there one day. But right now, God comes and says, listen, I am going to do something. I am going to do the things that I asked you to do. You're going to be a part of the whole thing, but I'm going to be partnering in a different kind of a way. I'm not just giving you a task. I'm saying that I'm going to form you into a people. I'm going to do something. I'm going to lead you on a new path. We're going to do this together, but I'm going to be the driving force, right? So it's no longer a command. All right, so anyways, they, Abram says, okay, and you're calling me to leave your country and your people and your father's house. So, so he and Sarai take off, and they begin following where God led. Now, they don't do it fully accurately because they bring a ton of crap with them. They bring all these animals. They bring a ton of family members. We don't know if that's exactly what God was asking them to do or if he was saying, just come and follow me, you two. But anyways, God makes a promise, and the next whole bunch of chapters are about Abram not really being able to trust that promise right off the bat. Okay, right off the bat. So one of the first things that we see happen 
is, is super messed up. All right, um, so now we're in, we're in chapter 12. I didn't put this up, so just keep this up here. Um, so he makes this promise. Oh, and I, I should finish this. He says, uh, and you will be a blessing. So it's this promise of multiplication is intended to benefit other people. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Again, we have very unique understandings of blessings and curses that have been formed often by our culture. Literally, that is saying, those who are working with you will find themselves working with me. Those, of you, those who are working against you will find themselves working against me. Okay, this is the concept here. So, Abram went, and they go, and they go, and they go. Now, when they're traveling, there becomes a famine in the land, and they need to seek out help. Okay, so Abram and Sarah go down to Egypt to live for a while. Now, as they're entering in, Abram's like, all right, listen, my wife, Sarai, she's 65-year-old hottie, and as soon as we get in here, other people are going to see the, the Pharaoh and everybody, they're going to see her, and they're going to want to take her as a wife or concubine, and they're going to kill me because I'm her husband. They need to get rid of me. So Abram, being wise and faithful, says, I'll just call you my sister. They can still do everything that they want to do to you, but they won't hurt me. And so I'm sure he has a little sit-down meeting. Doesn't it sound like I have this brilliant idea? So I'm just going to leave that there because just as a reminder that God calls people who need a whole lot more spiritual formation than they are just when God calls them. Just a reminder that Abram like, doesn't have it all going on. So this actually ends up happening, and Pharaoh notices and takes her in, and it's all going fine, but God had already said that God was going to be with them, and so what ends up happening is in the midst of this, and, and Abram, by the way, gets loaded by selling off his wife. So he gets all of this wealth that, the, that Egypt gives him, right, that the Pharaoh um, gives him, and it's just, it's, it's maddening, really. But here's what happens in chapter, in, in verse uh, 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him away with his wife and everything he had. So let me get this straight. God's people come into Egypt and there's a plague on Pharaoh's house because they take Abraham's family as their property. Are, are you with me? This is, so remember when this story was written, this was after all of the exodus had happened. They were telling the story. So they are telling not just the story of Abraham and Sarah. They are telling the story of God's people in this story. They are foreshadowing what will one day happen with the Egyptian slavery and the exodus. They are saying that, remember, in the midst of this, God is always at work helping to bring people back. It happened in this story. It's going to happen again later. Here's our foreshadowing. It's really, really fascinating, all right? Even with, to the point that Pharaoh has to send away the people with everything that they had. So... So they gain, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. All right, that's just an important thing to know. So this promise that God has given them is really, really interesting 
because, as we'll find out, Sarah is barren. Sarah is barren. Um, so they, they, they begin to try to be faithful, but in the back of the mind, Abram's got this whole, like, how can I really trust this promise of God, um, you know, and, and is this really going to happen? Like, I, I, just, I just don't know what it looks like to listen to a God who says, I want to use you. And, and so there's this constant back and forth that every time Abraham or Abram encounters God, he's like, are you sure? Like, how do I know? And God's like, trust me. And Abram's like, well, I, I just, okay, but how do we, how, do, how is this going to happen again? Can you please give me some more of the mechanics? And, and this is kind of the attitude that we see for several chapters. So he is going, he is faithful, but in the chapters that we're going to breeze over here, we find that he lives in a very dangerous world, all right, where there's alliances with local chieftains and local clan leaders, um, and, and this is the means of survival for people, okay? Uh, we have nothing that compares to how insecure their world was, by the way. There was no civil law, so you, had, you would establish security through two, through two means. One was to live within the walls of a walled city, and the other was to create relationships with other clans and other people who were nomadic that would agree to protect each other. These things were called covenants, all right? And so this was, this was what you would do to have mutual protection and support. You would join resources, you would join your identity. Um, so for Abram, we just need to know this, covenant making was a massive, massive part of, the, of this wandering life. He chose not to live within the city walls, and it was the only means of protection and provision for the family, all right? And covenant making became the only real way to trust an agreement or a promise in the Old Testament. So, back to the story. Abram's struggling to figure out, how do I know that I can trust this God who has given this promise to me? All right? He's got no kids. He, all of his household is going to go to one of his servants when he dies. Everything he has. Um, is, and so, so he's trying to, to work this out. So the next time God shows up, Abram says, I'm really struggling with trusting. How do I know that, you're gonna be, that I'm going to be okay? How do I know that you're going to actually lead me to this land? How do I know any of this? And God looks at him, and God says, four words. God looks at him and goes, bring me a heifer. Now, in the ancient worldview, this is the most delightful sentence that anybody could ever say to you. All right, so just imagine... That you're doing your thing, and you hear the voice of God chase, you're getting ready, getting ready to go to work, brushing your teeth in the morning, you hear the whisper of God chase. Yes, Lord, chase, bring me a heifer. And you are like, oh my goodness, my life is about to change. So here's, here's what is happening in this little simple moment where God says to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Um, God is saying to Abram, I want to form a covenant with you. Now, this was completely radical because gods don't make covenants with people because it's a joining of resources, it's a joining of identity, and it's this shared new journey together. And so, so the whole point of this is that God is entering Abram's world in a way that makes sense to Abram. And we, we have to understand this if we want to apply it to understanding today. God is taking the first move, which is always how covenants worked. Someone was always stronger, and they were the only ones who could offer an invitation to covenant. So the stronger chieftain would offer this invitation to the weaker one. There was always grace involved. One had to say, I'm willing to help you 
it helped them too. But I'm willing to help you. And then the other one would respond and say, yes, I want a covenant. Let's, let's, join, let's join forces together. But, God, but, but this is just the way that God invita- God's invitation always works. This is the story that we see over and over again. God coming the way of humanity. God moving toward us. God entering our story. And then inviting us into something new. And we must understand this because so often religion is twisted and turned and and manipulated into a forced thing that you must do instead of taking a step back and saying our story is something God has done first, a love that God has offered, an invitation that God has offered. Okay, so it appears to Abram that God wants to cut a covenant because covenants always started with that invitation. So let me just give a little bit of a background because there's a couple things that happen and again, some of you have heard this before and know it, but it's, but it's helpful. So let's say that there's um, a tribe or a clan, and they, I don't know, they're known for sheep, all right? So, so they, they, farm, they farm sheep, they're nomadic, they, they bring these sheep along, they use the wool and the meat to sell and to make their way. But they keep getting under attack, okay? And then there's another guy on the next hillside, and they do uh, pigs. Nope, bad, bad example for Jewish people. Um, let's say they do cows. So what do we have? Sheep and cows, right? Yeah, okay. So, so they do cows. So let's say we have John, who is a what? Sheep? Okay, and Jim, who is a cow farmer. So, so we've got John, the sheep farmer, and Jim, the cow farmer. And whoever's the larger of the clan says, hey, we should join forces because that would be beneficial for both of us. So John offers a, um, an invitation to Jim, okay? And when they make a covenant, they join all of their flocks together, Okay? Their people travel as one. If someone is attacked, all of the resources of both of their clans can be called into the battle, and their very names change and their identities change. So John becomes John Jim, the sheep cow farmer, and Jim becomes Jim John, the cow sheep farmer. And these are their new names, all right? And so this is how it works. Okay, so now. Let's talk a little bit more, because this is fun. We're going to move through it quickly, but it's just so much fun. All right, so when, when this happened, land, money, possessions, even the children of your covenant partner called into battle, that was the reality. So how was a covenant actually made? Let's check this out. Abram brought these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Okay, here's how covenants work. I have an assistant that I need up front here. Thank you, my dear. Okay. All right. So, safety. Okay. So, I, I have a few. I couldn't find a heifer, but this might be traumatic for a few of you. But I do have a few other animals that we were able to find. So, Abram goes out and he finds these animals. And let me, let me explain what's going on when Abram begins to do all of this work of cutting each of these animals from nose to tail. All right. I need you to create some tension here. Not like, like, yeah, actual physical tension, not like whatever, like poetic tension. This is why we have, there we go. And it was hard work, and you need to understand that it was really hard work the whole time. And so what Abram does is he spends all day long, and he starts to cut these animals. I really apologize. I should have given, Lori, I told you I was going to tell you when we do this, and I forgot to tell you today that this was the day. All right, we're almost there. And it's supposed to be hard, and it's supposed to take time, and I would imagine it's supposed to be somewhat traumatic, but 
This is why we didn't do it before the kids left. Some of them are going to see it. Almost there. Okay. This is going to be the hardest one. Okay. Oh. Okay. Go ahead. Do your thing. All right. And so what he does all day is he begins to... I can do it this a little easier. He begins to rip these apart, and then he arranges the animals from... You want to hold the tension there? Go straight down. Yeah. I'm not going to cut you. There we go. Okay, there you go. And what, what he's supposed to do is arrange these animals from nose to tail in order. And this is how all covenants were made. Interestingly enough, can you imagine? This was a part of wedding ceremonies in the ancient cultures where they would take all these animals and they would cut them in half. And this is only a part of it. And then they would arrange the animals in a row across from each other. Can you hold that nice and tight, babe? I'm going straight down. Don't worry. So, and it's really bloody, and it's really intense. But eventually, he gets there. And what's being formed, oh, I've got a big one left. We're going to get through him quickly. Let me see. Hold on. Let me try this way. Oh, wow. Super, super rough for this guy. All right. I'd like to say that no, no stuffed animals were hurt in the, in the forming of this sermon, but that is definitely not true. Okay, we're almost there. No. Yeah, his nose is a problem. Okay. All right. Maybe we go around it. Some people, this is like, you're not going to be able to see me the same again after this. But when I did this, at a, the last time I did this, it was in front of 500 teenagers. And one of the kids called out and said, this is so traumatic, it would be better if you used real animals. <laughs> I was, what kind of a monster are you? I'm like, it's harder for you to watch stuffed animals. You need to learn where some of your food comes from. Okay. Oh. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, we're almost there. Here we go. Yes. Okay. Last one. Last one. All right, go ahead and finish setting them up. <sighs> so, what ends up happening is you cut these animals all day long, and you arrange them with both halves, nose to tail, in this hallway. Okay? And what ends up happening then is the blood would flow into the middle of this corridor. It was literally called the path of blood or the corridor of blood, okay? And, and there were two symbols here. The first one was death. Shocker. Um, but the second one was life. So the death part is that when you walked through the corridor of blood... The, the stronger covenant partner would walk through, and then the lesser covenant partner would follow. And each one, when they walked through, they would recite an oath of uh, a, a, a curse oath, or um, an imprecatory oath, it was called. Sorry, I couldn't come up with that word for a second. And what you would say is you would walk through and you would say, if I break this covenant, may it be done to me like these animals. Okay? So what you're saying is, if I break my promise to be totally faithful and committed to you in every way, then I know it will cost me my life. 
okay? And both would go through, and this is how a covenant would, would be sealed. This is where we get the phrase, cut a deal. If you've ever heard that phrase, or it started to be called cut a covenant, and then over the years, it became cut a deal. You would cut these animals. So, so, but why would you walk through it like this? This is the next symbol. Do you see what we've formed? We've formed a birth canal. That's why the animals were cut nose to tail. Okay? So not only were you, were you saying, hey, may it be done to me if I break this oath, I understand I'm putting my life on the line. You were also walking through a birth canal because you were joining into a new identity. So God comes to Abram and says, I'm inviting you to be born again with me into a new identity. All right? So let's prepare the covenant. So Abram does it all day, and he works really hard. Thank you, Ben. Uh, he works really hard to get this all ready, and he finally gets, gets most of the way. He's driving away these birds, and in the midst of this reflection on, wow, what does it actually look like to form a covenant relationship with God? Like, what does this mean? We're told that a dreadful darkness comes over him. Think about Abram's walking through this canal that he's about to do and saying, if I ever break my promises to be completely faithful to you, may it be done to me as these animals. And all of a sudden, Abram's like, shoot, I'm not going to be able to do this. Just imagine the head games that would be happening. And so, so in, in Genesis 15, 12, we're told that as the sun was setting, there, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. And when this darkness comes over him, he gets a vision from God. And God essentially gives him a little precursor and says, listen, your people will suffer, but I will remain faithful even through that and after that. Okay? And I'm, and I'm giving you this reminder. But while he's in this kind of stupor, God, the stronger covenant partner, passes through. And he passes through in a... Um, let, let me get all of the language right. Um, he passes through in a smoking fire pot. So this is verse uh, 17. All right? Um, when the sun had set uh, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So there is smoke and there is fire that passes through this corridor. When Abram is like in this thick and dreadful darkness, unable to move, paralyzing fear, anxiety, whatever the case is, dread about this covenant possibly, this symbol of number one, smoke, and number two, fire, pass through. Now, if you know the Hebrew story, you know that smoke and fire are the things that will eventually guide and lead the Hebrew people during the Exodus. Smoke is used over and over in the, in the, um, in the tabernacle of God and in other ways to talk about the presence of God. Fire is also used over and over again. Our God is a consuming fire. During the Pentecost, the, the presence of God is seen as tongues of fire settling on the early disciples. Smoke and fire were both symbols of God's presence. And so what happens is when the sun sets, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And that's the end of the story. And what are we missing, friends? Him waking up. And so what does that mean? Never happens. 
the weaker member of the covenant never passes through the canal. But God passes through twice. So the imagery that we're getting here is God walking through and saying, if I ever break this covenant, may it be done. May it be done to me as to these animals. I am willing to lay my life on the line. And then God passes through the covenant canal again and says, if you ever break your commandments, may it be done to me. And I will lay my life on the line. We have to understand that from the foundational point of this entire story, we are given a glimpse of a God who says, I will go before you and I will take all of the risk on myself. There are plenty of times throughout the Old Testament where God makes commands and there are consequences. And God says, you need to follow me and it will go well. If you don't, it won't. And we get all of these things. And some of them are really complicated. And some of them, I think, do reflect a trajectory of what will one day come in culmination in Jesus. And some things, I think, don't reflect a trajectory but reflect a cultural understanding of what people thought God was like. But don't miss that there is a through line of Christ-likeness that comes from the first pages of the Bible all the way to the end. And it is founded on God's covenant. And this word covenant is the word that will go on to define all of the Hebrew people's story that leads to Jesus. So when Jesus says later in the Gospels, I have not come to abolish the law, and the law and the covenant were linked together. The law was how you kept the covenant according to the Hebrew people. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Jesus is talking about the covenant that was made so long ago and how he would walk perfectly in both the role of the human and the divine in opening the door to the truth of God's heart and to ultimate redemption. And it did not rely on humanity. This is why Paul, in his teachings, has to go so hardcore into saying, listen, No, you don't just play with grace so that you can sin more. You don't just just treat it cheaply and say, well, I guess because I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want. The only reason he had to tell that story was because his view of grace was so radical that it was nothing that we do at all. We've been brought into the covenant because Jesus was our covenant keeper. And it starts here. And so there's a reason that we have to understand the story. Because often, I don't know about you, but often people are like, well, I have this like really good relationship with Jesus. I'm jiving with Jesus. But I got a bit of a complicated relationship with God. Right? Like, like God the Father, a little scared. Jesus, buddy. Like, I really appreciate that Jesus protects me from God. That's not the image we get, friends. Like, this is not the image that we are given in the whole story. You can certainly tweak it and and twist it into something like that. But Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is the glory of God in God's fullness. Jesus is not the nice side of God. Jesus is not the rescuer from God. Jesus is God rescuing us. These are important differences. So that's that's this incredible story that is rooted in, in this. And it I don't know, um, in a couple weeks, Dwayne's going to take us through um, Isaac and Jacob, and I don't know if you're going to talk about Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, 
Are you? A little bit. Okay, so I'll give a little precursor there because that brings people tons of anxiety. So God commands Abram to do a child sacrifice. That's how we're supposed to read it because that's what every God would command because this is how the gods worked. So when God stops Abram, Abraham and says, hold up, do not lay a hand on him, I will provide the sacrifice, God was establishing himself as the anti-Molech. Molech was the God who demanded child sacrifices at the time. Everybody assumes the surprise in the story comes when, Abram's, or when Isaac is not sacrificed. The surprise isn't the call to kill. That's the assumption. So, so God is working within a culture to establish in a really slightly horrific way, let's be honest, but culturally understood to establish the opposite of what we often think the story looks like and means. So let's just see the through lines, right? All right. Um, so anyways, this is how the story continues, and, it, and it, 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 there's a lot more to it than that, but there's this journey that starts toward wholeness. Now, two chapters later, what the really fascinating thing is, is that um, when the next part of the covenant happens, which we're not going to talk about as much, but it's the circumcision covenant, when, when that happens, God says to Abram, I am changing your name from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai to Sarah. Now, linguistically, what happens is that Yahweh, who we don't know how to pronounce this Hebrew word. Hebrew was not, um, we don't have an uh, understanding of what Hebrew sounds like, so we've just done our best. That's why you have some people that say Jehovah and some people that say Yahweh. It's the exact same word. People just play around with what the best way to pronounce it is, and the Hebrews never wanted to pronounce it because they thought that might be taking the Lord's name in vain, which was one of the um, commandments. So they just said the Lord. So every time you see Lord in capital, it's that word, but the Hebrews didn't use it out loud. Why is I saying that? The letter H, thank you. So the point is, um, what happens is that God looks at these people and he says, in the midst of this covenant, what I'm doing is he, God takes a letter from God's name and inserts it into Abram's and Sarah's, Sarai's name. And it changes their identity. So God literally gives some of God's self to them, even in their names, so that the name becomes changed forever. So this is the type of, of commitment that we are seeing in this partnership. So this is this invitation that God gives to a new journey to become a new person. Can you imagine Abraham's thought process in all of this? Wondering what covenant really looked like now. How on earth could God embrace his identity? He's learning to embrace God's identity. How can God embrace his identity? How can God share his human identity? How can God travel through the birth canal to join me, right? How could the creator of the world become so committed to me that he's prepared to die? I don't understand how this is going to work. How can God invite me into a story where God and humanity have a shared identity? It's confusing. Do you see why this story gets illuminated by Jesus? So is it any surprise that when we get into, um, into the Gospels, we see Jesus' primary identity so many times is one of the one who invites people in. Look at the invitation passages over and over. This is just the book of Matthew. God says, Abraham, come and, come and join me in this journey. Jesus says, come follow me. Come all you who are weary. Come to Peter. Come out and take risks and learn to be like me. Jesus said, let the little children come. It's so beautiful. All these different types of people, all these disciples, and each one of them could have said, I think my life's a little bit too messed up. And we're glad that they didn't say that because they formed the church that we are trying to be as faithful of an expression of as we can. It doesn't require perfection to accept God's invitation, right? 
Um, and this is the story of God's people over and over. And that invitation is scary because sometimes it does look like death. Sometimes hearing the invitation of God to, to journey into whatever is new and whatever is next, it feels like death because you do leave old identities behind. And, and it's okay for it to feel like that. But remember that, that that is also the new birth that God is constantly inviting us into. Um, God is trustworthy. So since we know the whole story, Abraham's covenant is a reminder that God is in the process of remaking Adam. And it will take the entire story of the scriptures to get there. But remaking Adam, forming a new humanity. And so we see these through lines. So I think it's important just to be reminded that the, the story like this, if you want to boil it down, God is always inviting people into relationship. We see this through Jesus and through the original stories. All right. And also, God wants to share identity with humanity. And we see this in Jesus. Like, look at the passages. No one has seen God, uh, John writes, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Look at this language of shared identity that we see, okay? And finally, God is willing to take the risk and responsibility of relationships. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's a responsibility statement from Jesus. He himself bore our sins so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. These are understandings that Jesus has taken the risk of the relationship in order to invite us into the fullness of life with God. And it's so beautiful. Let me skip that. Um, so I don't know if you've been in a, in a situation where you feel like others get invited into something that you don't. Maybe it's work, opportunities. Maybe it's your own, your personality that you don't feel like you're whatever, outgoing enough to get invited into opportunities that happen or you feel like you aren't demonstrative enough or you, or you don't have the skills enough, whatever, and you get overlooked, right? It might just be life situations. It could be anything, but it feels lousy to not be invited into something. And let us be reminded that this is the story that God invites all of humanity into something beautiful, into a new birth, into a new identity, and into a new way of doing things that looks like Jesus. Uh, and as we, in, as we get invited into God's story, we become the kind of people that want to make sure that everybody else gets invited into it too. It shapes our character, and it helps us move toward that. So you become one of those folks in the world, the included ones in God's family that always wants to make sure that others are included in God's family too. Um, you get blessed to be a blessing, in the words of Yahweh to Abraham in chapter 12. So you're invited in. Can we agree to be open to that invitation? I just want to invite you like, to, to, to be open to that invitation and to commit as a people to make sure that we're making places where other people get invited into. Can we, can we commit to that? To say, I want to be available to the invitation of God and I want to be someone who helps in, invite others in too. Can we, can we make those commitments together? Deal? Anybody have a cow? Let's pray. Lord, uh, in the midst of this whole journey that might just feel a little bit like, I don't know, a theological history lesson, I pray that you, uh, you open us up to see your heart of invitation and your commitment to your people that is a forever commitment. Um, help us both rest in that and, and somehow find new life in it, Lord, wherever we're at. Uh, amen.